Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Tom. Uh, I'm one of the curates here. And uh, before we begin, apropos of previous notices that were uh, made this morning, I feel I have a duty to tell you that I am going to be setting the quiz questions this year. I haven't done it yet, so if you've got any particular favourite subjects, Barbara, come and let me know afterwards so, so you can be on the winning team. Uh, why don't we just uh, take a moment and pray uh, as we look to God's word. Jesus, we thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you for the power that you speak to us through it and that as we read and learn together, you minister your truth to our hearts. We pray, Spirit, that you would be here among us this morning and open our hearts, our eyes, our minds to know you afresh in this wonderful passage for your glory. Amen. It's good to be here uh, this morning and to be sharing with you on a topic that I'm particularly um, passionate about, which is worship. Um, And you may have seen that the sermon series that we're moving into is all about the idea of worship, what it is, what it involves, what it means. And that's particularly relevant uh, at the moment to us at Holy Trinity because worship is um, embedded in our purpose and values, isn't it? We say that we want to be uh, a people who encounter celebrate and share God's transforming love. And one of our values is connecting with God. So as we embark on this series, it would be good, we we hope and pray that we'd be able to get under the skin of these ideas and really ask the Lord afresh to help us understand why these things are important and why we worship. And before I begin, I thought it might help to give you a little bit of background on me uh, and how I end up um, here today speaking on this um, subject. Um, you may already know that in my previous church, I was the worship pastor, which meant that I oversaw all of the um, contemporary uh, worship music at previous church. And for me, music in worship has been a big part of my faith journey. Um, I became a Christian at Soul Survivor, which was a big summer festival that ran for nearly 30 years with thousands of young people would come along every year and worship in a big setting with a band uh, kind of leading the worship. And part of what drew me to commit um, myself to Jesus um, at that point in time was being surrounded by all these um, young people passionately worshipping the Lord and the impact that it had on me. And I tell you that because I think it's important that we acknowledge that we all come from somewhere when we talk about worship. We all bring certain preference or bias or assumption, maybe, to the idea of worship. Uh, It doesn't matter what that preference is, but it's just helpful to acknowledge at the beginning that we all have our own different ways of doing it. And for me, it doesn't mean that musical worship is the be-all and end-all. There's lots of other different ways of doing it. Um, But those kind of preferences exist. If I asked everybody here this morning to define worship, I reckon we'd probably have about 50 different kind of ideas of what it looks like. And part of the problem is that um, we're dealing in the English language, (coughs) excuse me, where we only have sort of one or two words for worship, but Hebrew, there are at least nine different words that would hint at worship. There's halal, which means celebrate, shabak, which means announce, there's barak, which means kneel, makal means dance, takar means clap hands, and tehillah means sing a new song. 
So you can see just from that kind of survey of Hebrew words for worship, these ideas are kind of peppered throughout Scripture. And it gives us an indication of the importance that God places on worship. And that's the kind of worship that we're going to be mainly thinking about through this series. The intentional worship, the gathered worship that we do, all of those different nine kind of Hebrew words, when we gather together the way that we express our praise to God. There is another kind of worship, the sort of whole life worship, how we live our daily lives, how we think and act. But that's probably a whole kind of other sermon series. So just wanted to kind of be up front from the outset. We're going to be focusing on the idea of gathered worship in this bit. That's enough scene setting for now, I think. Our title this morning is Why Worship? So what's the point? A few years ago, my wife, uh, Megan, was helping to lead a a kind of youth camp for um, Christians um, in summer holidays. And they used to have uh, big worship kind of um, evenings. And the the camp took place in a kind of old sort of stately home, but like a big kind of country home with a big hall where they all met to worship. And it was led by a band. (coughs) And one particular evening, um, the worship leader... Uh, at this event had chosen a song called Majesty. And I don't know whether you've ever sung the song or you know it, but it's a really hard uh, one to lead because it's got a really big range. So it starts quite low, but in the chorus it gets really high. So it's very difficult to work out how to pitch it. Um, now, just as the song was approaching the first chorus line, um, my wife describes the visible look of horror that passed across the face of the worship leader as he realised he got the pitch of the song wrong. He realised that he'd made a massive misjudgment and the next note was going to be way out of reach. And he was faced with a split-second decision. Either just abandon it and kind of acknowledge that he'd made a mistake and just like tell the band to stop playing and they'd start again and everybody would laugh it off. Or to do what no mere mortal could possibly do and try and reach the impossible note. Well, he was a braver man than me. And he went for the impossible note not only did most of the congregation and the rest of the band completely abandon him, <coughs> but at that exact point, a bat flew in a window at the top of the hall. You've got to love God's sense of humour, hasn't you? As if God was saying the only thing capable of hearing a human person sing at this uh, pitch was a bat. So when we are that kind of flawed and weak, like that poor worship leader, what's the point of worship? We're never going to be strong enough in our own gifting to bring something which is acceptable to God. What is the point? Well, I'd like to suggest that our reading this morning um, holds some big clues um, to find the answer to that question. So turn with me, if you will, to this passage from Ephesians. I think it was 1173 in the Bible. And as with any passage of Scripture, I think it's important that we just put a little bit of context around what we're reading. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the early uh, Christians in the city of Ephesus, which is an important city in the Roman Empire. Uh, And Ephesus was particularly important because it was the centre of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. Um, And there was a huge temple dedicated to her there, and it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the whole economy of the city was underpinned um, and revolved around the worship of this Greek goddess. 
So the early Christians who lived in this place would have been surrounded by this worship to the point of saturation. And knowing this, I think, gives us a way in to understand what Paul's getting at when he's talking to the Ephesians. And as we ask the question, why worship? I think there are three particular kind of nuggets of gold for us this morning in what Paul says to the Ephesians. First one, God chooses us. In verse 4, Paul says, doesn't he, that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's just take a, a, a moment to reflect on what that really means, how world-changing a truth that is. Before any of what we see around us existed, before the trees, before the sky, before the sun, before Holy Trinity, before the bricks, before the universe, before all of it was even here, God chose us, me, you, each of us here this morning. He chose us to be holy and blameless. But what does that mean? Holy and blameless. I know I don't feel holy and blameless most of the time. And we know last term, if you were part of the, um, the Bible uh, project, um, sorry, the Bible course studies, you will have seen that from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, we're not holy and blameless. We keep going wrong. So what I think this means here, what Paul's getting at, is that right before, before the beginning, before the Garden, God knew he was going to create each of us, and in Jesus, he chose us to be holy and blameless. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, which he had planned and knew was going to happen, he blotted out our wrongdoing and made us pure. And that's, I think that's good news to start us off with. So that's the first nugget. God chooses us. Second one. God desires relationship with us. Look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In accordance with his pleasure and will. He, he's chosen us because he wants to. No more, no less. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And we see that echoed time and time again throughout Scripture. If you think right back to the beginning, at the beginning of creation, in the garden, God put humans in the garden, but he wasn't somehow removed or separate from that. God lived in the garden. The idea was that humans would walk with him and talk with him as they did a friend. And if you skip forward all the way through to the end, the end time, Revelation, when we believe that actually the kingdom of heaven will come, there's this beautiful, beautiful picture of a heavenly city with all of us living there with God, who is the centre of this city. And there is no sun because there doesn't need to be any light because God is the light. God intends us to be in relationship with him. We say it in the communion liturgy, don't we? He opened his arms of love upon the cross. That is Jesus welcoming us back into relationship with him. So first nugget, God chooses us. Second nugget, God desires relationship with us. And third, when he chooses us and when he has relationship with us, it glorifies him. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all for God's glory. We're not an accident of science. We've been created for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God, to worship him. So remember then, let's go back to where we began with this passage and what our context was. Um, the city of Ephesus, which was part of the culture that was saturated in the worship of this goddess Artemis. So think about what Paul is saying to the Ephesians here. He's reminding them why they were created. Not to worship Artemis, a kind of petty, vengeful, pernicious goddess, but to worship the one true God, the author of everything. So how about, we've talked about the Christians in Ephesus, how about the Christians in Claygate? We might not be in a culture that worships a Greek goddess, but sure enough, I think there are thousands of things that our culture does worship. You may not know this about me, but I'm a huge fan of um, Crystal Palace Football Club. I can only apologise. I hear this is probably more of a Chelsea area, (laughs) but... Uh, I'm afraid to say that I've been afflicted with that particular condition since I was very young when my dad took me to a game uh, and I've not been able to shake it since. Um, And for years I would buy all the football kits, I'd go to all the home games, I'd go to lots of away games, I'd be um, on cloud nine if they won and I'd be absolutely miserable and inconsolable if they lost. I've been to Wembley to watch them in cup finals, I've endured 12-hour drives, Um, to watch them play. I've stood on the terraces and I've joined in with thousands of others singing hymns of praise to my football team. But a few years ago, I was challenged on this. How much of my time, my money, my energy, my love was going into watching or loving my football team rather than worshipping my God? And as I stopped to think, I realised that this didn't paint a good picture. To all intents and purposes, I was worshipping Crystal Palace Football Club and not the living God. And that had to change because it's not how I was created. There's no point in worshipping Crystal Palace. They've never won anything meaningful. And even if they did, it would only be another team's turn the next year. They're definitely not the author of the universe and they're not going to save my soul. I wonder this morning, can you think of things that consume your time, your energy, your money? Maybe it's work, maybe it's going to the gym, maybe it's food or holidays or your house. Maybe you're fanatical about a particular band or um, an orchestra or the work of a particular composer or a celebrity. Whatever we give the highest priority to in our lives. That's what we worship. And our passage this morning couldn't be clearer, I don't think. It says that we don't exist to work hard. We don't exist to be happy or have fun. We don't exist to achieve our ambitions. We definitely don't exist to follow Crystal Palace. We don't even exist to serve God. We exist to worship him. None of these things are bad in themselves. They're just not the reason that we were made. 
Jesus says, doesn't he, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And that's why gathering to worship together, like we are this morning, is so important. It was for the Ephesians and it is for us. When we meet together like this to give God glory, we we almost physically turn ourselves back to him, don't we? We look at the front, we look at the cross, we turn ourselves back to God. By being here, we're choosing to give our time and our money and our attention to God to proclaim that he is the focus of our lives. He is the reason that we live. And we are saying, God, we want to be in relationship with you. We are called to choose the one who first chose us. And you only have to take a really quick skim through the Bible just to see how profound this call to worship is. When Abraham first encounters God, he um, makes a sacrifice, an act of worship. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt, it's so that they can worship the Lord, and Miriam sings a song of worship. When Hannah hands over her much longed-for baby son, Samuel, to the Lord, she lifts up her voice in worship. When David dances before the Lord with all his might, it's an act of worship. When Job loses everything, he falls to his knees in worship. In the New Testament, when Mary knows she's carrying the saviour of the world in her womb, she worships. When the wise men greet Jesus, the Christ child, they worship. When the disciples realise that Jesus is the Messiah, they worship. All these people give their whole selves to God. They chose the one who first chose them. And you know what the really amazing thing is here? When we follow the lead of these kind of giants of history, these biblical greats, it's not just a one-way encounter. I don't know if you know the words of Psalm 22, which says that God dwells in the praises of his people. So when we gather to worship on a Sunday and we praise God in what we say and sing and what we do, he actually really meets us here. He really comes and he really changes us. He, he somehow encounters us in this moment. We don't understand it, but that's life-changing. And that has to mean that we're not here just to go through the motions, as Patrick said earlier. We're not here to sing our favourite songs. We're not here to recite words on a page. Charles Wesley, right before he died, the greatest hymn writer of them all, I think, said, I will die praising thee and rejoice that others can praise thee better. I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Wesley understood that as we praise God, we become like him. As we invest in relationship with God and proclaim his lordship, he restores us more and more to how we were intended to be originally in the garden. Holy and blameless. It's in coming to worship God as a community that we discover our identity as his children. When we worship God together, we choose the one who first chose us. So as I finish... That's why worship can't just be about how we live our lives. That's important, but it has to be more 
intentional. To truly worship means to set aside time like this morning to be the people of God in the presence of God, pouring out the praises of God. Our preference, our style, our tradition, it doesn't matter. So as we enter this new season of worship, let's turn ourselves back to God. Let's reorientate ourselves to him. Let's challenge ourselves not to go through the motions. We're here to worship the king. Let's choose the one who first chose us. Amen.